Uh, my name is Mark Evans. I am a marketing consultant. Um, I used to say that I helped startups tell stories better, but I've recently changed that to say that I work with help fast-growing companies grow even faster by creating marketing that actually works. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. Uh, I've been a consultant for almost nine years. Uh, before that, I was a startup entrepreneur. I co-founded a startup at the height of the dot-com boom, not the best time in hindsight. And before that, I was a journalist with Globe and Mail, Bloomberg, and the National Post. That's like a, a wide variety of things that you've done. It uh, wasn't by design. I loved journalism. I loved uh -huh. being a reporter. I spent a lot of years writing about technology and have – it was an amazing way to satisfy my own curiosity. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's what made me a good journalist. But I started working with startups and entrepreneurs, and I think I caught the bug. At first, I started to advise them when I was a reporter. Then I started, Really? Then I organized conferences around entrepreneurship. Mm. And then a friend of mine who's a lot smarter than me uh, said, hey, I'm doing a startup. Do you want to help me? And I said, fantastic, that sounds great. And he said, by the way, we're all going to become millionaires because at the time, everybody was becoming Everyone a millionaire. Everyone becoming a millionaire. And, uh, well, it didn't turn out that way. Yeah. Um, and so I, but that, I didn't give up on entrepreneurship. I kept on going. And uh, in 2008, when I got laid off by a startup, um, I didn't have anything to do. I, wasn't, I was wondering what I should do. I was thinking maybe I should go back to journalism, which didn't seem like a very good idea. So I thought, well, why don't I start this consulting business? And the funny thing about it was that I had three months severance, which was pretty good for being laid off by a startup. And I said to my wife, you know, if I had six months rather than three months, I would definitely do this startup mm. consulting thing. I would be an entrepreneur. And she turned to me. She's a very pragmatic woman. She said, you know, why don't you make your three-month severance last for six months, and then you could do this thing. So I did it. <laughs> and that was the start of my uh, consulting business. And I, it's sort of a lot like when you go to a cottage and you're standing on the dock and you want to go for a swim, but you just think the water's going to be way too cold. Yeah. And someone comes up from behind and just gives you a little nudge. They don't shove you in, but they give you a little nudge and you tumble into the water and it's shocking at first. And then you start swimming around Yeah. and you get comfortable. And that's what I think entrepreneurship is like. It's, mm -hmm. it's a real shock to the system because there's no support system and there's no bi-weekly paycheck. It's just you. And to continue the analogy, either you sink or you swim. Yeah. And, uh, and it's hard at first, but if you can survive that first year, then you're probably on your way. Awesome. I want to continue with that analogy because I know exactly what you're talking about. But with me, I would get out of the water. After, you know, you swim, you enjoy, then you get out because it's nice, sun is shining, and you get out and there's a slight breeze and you feel cold, and then you put that towel around you, and you never go back in the water. That's me. <laughs> so that's my entrepreneurial journey. I, I, I dove in or I got pushed in. Um, it was fun. I got out. It started getting a little bit cold, and I've never wanted to go back in. Well, entrepreneurship is not for everyone. I yeah. mean, the thing about it is right now is that it is the new black. Entrepreneurship mm. is sexy. Starting your thing sounds really exciting. And so that's why you're getting yeah. a ton of people 
going into startups or starting startups or starting their own consulting businesses. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that being an entrepreneur is hard. It's a sure. lot of hard work. It's long hours. There's a lot of uncertainty. I mean, you have no idea whether what you're offering is going to attract people who want to pay for it. Yeah. And so people don't realize that. They just read kind of the exciting good news stories in the newspaper and they don't hear about all the startups eight out of ten startups fail mm -hmm. and lots of people go into consulting and can't make it work so they go back to the cubicle and we probably need to talk about that a lot more to talk yeah. about you know what it's like to be an entrepreneur so that people go into it um, with a better sense of a reality sure and I want to talk about that but let's let's go back to uh, Carleton University you know you said you started off in journalism you actually went to Carleton for journalism. Um, why was that? Did you, you you caught some sort of a bug to to be a journalist? You enjoyed reading. What was? I was a sports fan. Okay. I read the sports pages like yeah. right away. The world could be exploding, and I'd go to the sports section and see yeah. how the Leafs were doing. And I wanted to be a sports reporter, really? like from high school. I wanted to be a sports reporter. I was really lucky that I knew what I wanted to be. Um, got to Carleton, did a degree in journalism. Um, and then decided I didn't want to be a sports reporter because okay. there was much more serious journalism to tackle. <laughs> Graduated from school. There wasn't any jobs in newspaper journalism. Uh -huh. Ended up in the Brampton Daily Times as a sports reporter. Oh, wow. So that's my first job covering junior C hockey. Junior uh, C? Junior C, not junior B or junior A. What's junior C? It's kind of, uh, it's kind of like a beer league for teenagers. The way I put it, okay, it's sort of like they're not probably there. Some of them are drinking beer, but yeah. it's probably it's the lowest of the low. You're still playing junior hockey, except it's not very high. Yeah, uh, covered a lot of high school sports, uh, covered a lot of um, dart tournaments and wow. lacrosse. Okay, it, and the, it, I mean it's it wasn't terribly glamorous, even though it was sports, but it was amazing training. Two years in Brampton was delivered way more value than four years at journalism school because at journalism school you're you know, you're learning the theories and the history of journalism, which is great, but you're not really doing it. Mm -hmm. And so you get to the real world, and all of a sudden, again, sink or swim. Either you can write and report, or you can't. Yeah. And I discovered I had a gift for writing, um, or newspaper reporting, and and I loved it. And that was that was the beginning of my journalism career. And how did you get in from sports to business? Because I, you know, you're, you know. Uh, Globe and Mail uh, that you've written in uh, Bloomberg Nerd Bloomberg Nerds. It was for Bloomberg nerds, News actually, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Financial Post. Like, how did how did that transition happen? Was so that I realized that that the thing about sports writing it's really great, but the the lifestyle is you work nights and you work weekends. So if you want a social life or you want a family life, it's not going to work for you. Okay. So I realized after a while that maybe it wasn't the best way to make a living. Maybe there was other ways that I could deliver value. Mm-hmm. And the Financial Post had just gone daily. They were about a year in, and I applied. And they had a big newsroom, and they liked young and cheap talent. And I was young, and I was cheap, <laughs> and so they hired me. And that was the beginning of my um, business career. And it was it was great way to great place to work. There was lots of really awesome people there. A lot of them are still journalists. Uh, many at the at the National Post and the Globe and Mail. Yeah. Um, how, and, how long were you writing for? Uh, well, that's a long story because I left and came back, left and came back, left and came back. Yeah. Uh, but in all, I probably worked for them probably about seven years in total. Okay. Um, initially covering retail. And then I had – I'm sort of fast-tracking the story sure, here. Sure, but I sure. left to go to Hong Kong for two years. I worked as a reporter in Hong Kong. Wow. Um, for? I, for the South China Morning Post. 
Okay. And a local Chinese newspaper. That must have been an amazing experience. It was an amazing experience. Yeah. I mean, uh, Hong Kong is unlike any place I had ever lived. It, it was, it's chaos, and it's crazy, and it's exciting. And for a young person, it was a great place to just hang out for a couple of years and met, you know, made some good money, traveled a lot. Yeah. Came back to Canada. Um, started again at the at the Financial Post, and I had an editor at the time, Tim Pritchard, who said to me, "Listen, you've got two options. You can cover like the office equipment market. He was setting me up, or you can cover this new thing called you can cover technology." Yeah. And I said, "Well, I guess I'll cover the technology thing." And then there was telecommunications, and then there was this thing called the internet. And I lost a, flo- a, a coin flip with this female reporter, this other reporter. And she loved telecommunications, so she kept writing about telecom, and I got to write about the internet. Yeah. And it turned out... And you didn't want to, though. I didn't want to, because this internet thing, I mean, this is the mid-90s, mid to late-90s, and this is like, you know, I'm dating myself, but the internet thing wasn't a thing. Yeah. You know, it was... It was a fad. It was, it was the geek thing, you know? <laughs> it was all these people on, you know, Telnet and these browsers that were black and white, and yeah. like, I got an email address because I was the internet reporter, and no one had an email address. Yeah. And so it was sort of virgin territory, and I got to do whatever I wanted. And then Netscape ro- you know, came about, and all of a sudden the, the internet was sexy, and I was the tech reporter you at were the, the National- wow. Financial Post. Now, I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember, um, because some things do disappear from, from the internet, or at least if they don't disappear, they get buried a lot, buried really, really deep. Did, were you writing about um, BlackBerry or RIM or Nortel? Did you have a blog? Was that you? Yeah, I, I wrote a... I wrote, eventually, I, I went back to the, the my final iteration at the National Post. I ended up writing about Nortel. I started a blog called All About Nortel. Yeah. And it really was me. And was this at the height of Nortel, or was this as it was? This was as it was starting to go downhill, which was fantastic because there was daily drama. And the company was a disaster, and the management teams were mm. awful. They made some terrible decisions. And the blog was extremely popular. I could imagine. It was I mean, I got all this documentation from inside Nortel and from analysts. And so for Nortel employees, it was must-read reading. They yeah. came to my blog every single day. And so it was very gratifying. You know, the page views were out of sight. And then I sort of stopped writing about Nortel because I moved on to other things. But sadly, uh, I logged in one day and all everything was gone. It had, been, it had been hacked. Oh, no. And I went to my host and said, hey, my website's been hacked. Uh, can you back it up for me or yeah. give me the backup files? And I hadn't sort of clicked on the option that. Oh, that's why I can't find it. You anymore. can't find it anymore. But it was, it was, and it really is sort of an amazing archive of. of yeah. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if some hackers got it in his database somewhere. But at the time, you know, I was done with Nortel. It was a great adventure, and I wasn't terribly sad about it. Okay. Uh, it was unfortunate, um, but it was. Its time had come. I guess it had a best best until date. What what went wrong? Now, for all the kids listening, and they're asking, "What the heck is this Nortel?" You know, what was Nortel? Well, Nortel was one of the world's leading telecom equipment makers. Yeah. You know, right up there with yeah. Cisco and Alcatel and Lucent. And I think it was hubris, to be honest. It was a boring company that decided it didn't want to be born anymore. It wanted to be sexy. Yeah. And so they made a series of multi-billion dollar acquisitions. A lot of it was stock. And they bought companies that were – there wasn't much to them. Mm. And they they – didn't see the market shifting on them. I don't think they moved quick enough when the internet really sort of started to rumble. Yeah. And management was, there was a series of CEOs that kept trying new strategies and none of them worked. And it was 
it really culminated in Nortel hiring um, an ex-U.S. admiral to be CEO, which is which is what? <laughs> and that really was the beginning of the end, I think. Yeah. I mean, nothing against the admiral, but you really needed a hardcore telecom executive. At one time, there was a couple of um, ex-Cisco executives in there that were going to do a radical surgery on Nortel that probably would have saved it. But they got um, booted out by the board, and Nortel went down in a ball of flames. And you have to remember that Nortel was a like $100 billion company. They employed thousands and thousands of people in Canada. They yeah. were an innovation powerhouse, the kind of company that Justin Trudeau wants to build today in Canada. Yeah. And they went up in smoke like that. Just like that, they were gone. Yeah. They, they were, they, were they not one of the most valued companies on the stock exchange? At not, the time, yeah. yeah. yeah they were... Everybody in their pension funds had Nortel. Had Nor- yeah, that's right. And and Nortel just went rumbling downhill mm. really fast. It was fast and furious, yeah. and it's a, it's a it's a real tragedy because a lot of great technology came in at Nortel, and and now we have none of it. That's crazy. Now, what were, were there any other big stories while you were a tech reporter? Um, similar to Nortel. I know there's BlackBerry, but I'm wondering, were there any massive success stories, whether it was Canadian or international, shifts in the industry that you that you remember? It's an interesting question because Nortel was sort of... That was the big one. The yeah. big one. You know, what's interesting now compared to then is that I think that we have a much more interesting and much more vibrant technology scene than we had... 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I think the diversity... In Canada. In Canada. The diversity in terms of the number of companies, the type of companies, the quality of the entrepreneurs, um, the innovation, um, strikes me as far more exciting than what we had before. Because before we had these boring software companies like Cognos and and Newbridge and Nortel and OpenText, which are great enterprise companies. But now you have... You know, you have the Shopify's and the mm. Hootsuites and the Desire to Learns and companies yeah. that are, you know, hiring lots and lots and lots of people doing really interesting things. And these companies are actually world leaders. Yeah. You know, they have global potential and they're and they're homegrown. They're domestic yeah. success stories. And um, they're spawned by, you know, a growing um, number of really, really smart entrepreneurs uh, some of which were born here, some of which have come into the country and flourished here. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited by the technology scene. I think uh, it's, I think, you know, we talk a lot about innovation these days, but, you know, Justin Trudeau was talking the talk, mm-hmm. um, but there's a lot of walking the walk out there. Yeah. There's a lot of really, really uh, ambitious entrepreneurs mm. um, that are going to really push the agenda forward. And you're starting to get serial entrepreneurs, people who have had a big success. And then they're starting to either fund startups or they're going to do it again and again. Yeah. And I think that's what makes a really healthy ecosystem when you have um, repeat entrepreneurs. Huh. Do you think we'll have a dominant player um, the likes of BlackBerry or Nortel again in Canada? Or are there any that you can see that these guys have the potential? Well, we could have a dominant player uh, as long as they don't sell out. Because in Canada, we have a tendency to mm. take the money and run. So a company, for example, gets to about $25, $30 million in revenue. The entrepreneurs say, oh, my God, this is going to set me up for life. And then they sell to the U.S. Yeah. who get a bargain. And they leave a lot of money on the table. But I think that is changing. I think the attitude is changing. So if you look at Hootsuite mm-hmm. or Shopify, I mean, Shopify, Toby at Luke, Shopify says he's not selling. 
Yeah. So they're not selling out to anybody. I mean, they've gone IPO, but they're not going to sell. He yeah. wants to build a billion dollar company, yeah. and um, and I guess you could probably say the same for uh, for uh, Hootsuite. Yeah. I and mean, they haven't gone public yet, um, but they want to build a multi billion dollar company. And I think it's it's a mindset. Americans mm. are super aggressive. They want to be world beaters, and they'll get enough investment, and they'll push themselves hard enough that they'll build, you know, unicorns. Mm-hmm. In Canada, we need to stop thinking about, you know, becoming minnows and then yeah. pulling, you know, reeling the thing in. We need to, we need to want to become unicorns too. Now we may not get there, but it's it comes down to mindset. I'm going to build a giant global company. Yeah. I'm not going to. Nothing's going to stop me. And if I don't get there, that's okay. But I'm not going to stop prematurely. Do you wish you were a journalist like now? During this time that you said it's flourishing, there's a, there's a vibrant ecosystem. Do you wish you were still doing that? Absolutely not. No? Why no. not? Um, I think journalism is a lot harder job than it used to be. Okay. So I used to work as a business reporter. I used to work 9 to 5. Yeah. And I hate to say it, but I usually went I worked out at lunch. Yeah. Maybe one time a week I played hockey at lunch with a bunch of other reporters. And yeah. I don't think you get to do that these days. No. I, I think you're on all the time. Yeah. You know, with your smartphones and everything else. I think that... You know, you're you're constantly working during the day. You're filing. You're probably doing podcasts. Maybe you're doing videos. Mm-hmm. It's you're, you're always it, on the go. You're always on the go. So that's the one side of it. And I had a I had a I had a good go at being a journalist. Yeah. And what I'm doing is is really exciting right now mm-hmm. because it's new and the market the marketing landscape shifts so rapidly that I'm constantly. Uh, having to reinvent myself, I'm I'm constantly having to learn new things, um, and I, I think you know second careers are are an amazing opportunity to stretch yourself sure. into places where you think that you would never have gone. Yeah, and so yeah, I'm I I just can't see myself being a journalist this, these days. I mean, I would have been an editor by now, and that, I think that would have bored me to tears. <laughs> I I I want to stay on journalism just for a couple more minutes, and and then we'll head off. Um, the whole. Industry, journalism industry, um, news reporting um, is under a microscope these days, it seems, whether it is uh, discussions around uh, profitability and future viability of the of the industry um, or whether it is uh, this whole, it seems like it's been a year plus now about this talk of quote-unquote fake news. Um, where, what is... I remember being at a conference. I think you were on that panel. Um, I don't know if it was Social Media Week or something, but it was the name of the panel was the future of news or the future of journalism. Um, today, 2017, what is what is journalism? Where are people going to be consuming news and information? Is it going to be these legacy media brands, you know, for, in Canada? Uh, you know, is it the CBCs of the Toronto Star, whether it is the newspaper, the TV, online? You know, what what are your thoughts? That's a if I knew the answer to that, I'd be <laughs> I'd be a, I'd be a newspaper analyst. Um, it's interesting because uh, I was talking to uh, uh, John Collins at uh, Intercom. He's a former journalist who now is heads up content for Intercom, which is a Dublin based um, startup. Mm-hmm. And he's his he reminded me. He said to me, you know, that there is more. Um, journalism consumed than ever. People are reading more stories by on like newspapers than okay. ever. 
very, very popular, yeah. except that the business model is broken. Mm. Um, that people, um, the newspapers can't generate enough um, advertising. Classifieds have disappeared. Yes. Um, autos disappeared. A lot of their uh, bread and butter has disappeared. I was reading um, a column. Um, this It's an email called Stratchery. This guy's super smart. And he was talking about... The email fa- newsletter? Email newsletter. Okay. And he was talking about the fact that you know, classifieds or newspapers were like that was high margin advertising. That's how they subsidized the rest of the operation. Mm-hmm. And that disappeared. And his theory is that, you know, a lot of journalism right now, a lot of traditional journalism, like the printing, the distribution, the physical space is yeah. totally uneconomical. Yeah. And so we may go back to having none of that and just having digital journalism because the rest of it doesn't make sense anymore. So mm-hmm. Uh, I think the structural changes in the industry are we're still in in the midst of it. I think a lot of a lot of a lot of newspapers are going to disappear. I yeah. think there's still room for newspapers. Like I still think there's room for the New York Times and the Washington Post um, and the Economist. But I think there's going to be a whole new um, wave of journalists journalism. You know, Politico, yeah. Slate, things like that. Smart, savvy, cost efficient journalism mm-hmm. that will be profitable and that will be viable yeah. and a lot of other journalism will will disappear. Now that being said um, uh, journalism exists in other places too. Television journalism I think is still viable. Mm. Uh, radio is still very much alive and well. Um, so the the landscape is under it's i mean it's it's, it's under, changing it's changing very it's, quickly isn't it's it changing but i think i think i think it's still very early days unfortunately yeah um but i think um i think a lot of newspapers could disappear i think the national post for example could disappear yeah it's not making any money um you talked about reading this newsletter where you got you know you read this column um you have a newsletter um a couple of episodes ago i had uh, mark weisblatt of uh, 1236 um, he's got a daily daily newsletter, um, and there's a lot of these newsletters. Uh, tell me, you know, we'll, we'll talk about yours in, in, in a bit, but um, the pop, the rise in popularity of of newsletters. So I think that newsletters are popular because people are still addicted to their email. Hmm. There is more email being sent. There is more. Uh, Inboxes being created than ever before. I think in the, I think it's it's rising by about four percent a year. And wow. the, I think there's a two point six billion dollar in uh, six billion inboxes, and that's growing, right? So people still love their email, even though you know people say millennials don't check email, but I, I I'm not so sure that's true. But everybody else in the business world checks email. You have all these smartphones with all kinds of communication apps, but we still check email. So that's one hmm. email. Is still a way to break through the clutter. So social media and content marketing, I sort of um, describe them as kind of like the Santa Claus parade. Like the the floats keep coming, yeah. And you bend down to tie your shoe or to wipe your kid's nose, and when you look up again, the float you've missed nothing because the float is still the floats <laughs> are still coming, right? And content marketing and social media are exactly like that. You miss some really great um, eBooks or blog posts or um, updates or yeah. photographs, but that's okay because there's, there's more, more, coming. more and more on the way. So I think um, it becomes kind of like a blur to people. But the inbox, which is my mm. inbox, that's yeah. that's for me, yeah. is my sort of digital sanctuary. 
It's mm. where I get the stuff that matters to me, and and for whatever reason, it's important that I tend to that um, yeah. sort of piece of my digital world. And so it's a way of getting attention. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's why um, newsletters are really popular, and and I think that there are, I mean, newsletters are very cost efficient to send. I mean, you could you could send two thousand plus emails on Mailchimp for thirty bucks, which is mm-hmm. nothing. Thirty bucks a month, which is nothing. And and it's a very personal um, kind of journalism, is that you can be opinionated, you can be a, uh, you can create content, you can send out corporate updates, but it's all from you to someone else. And I think people want the ability to touch people on a regular basis. You know, more so, it's it's the ability to basically sort of hold up your hand once in a while and say, "Remember me? Remember <laughs> me? I, I I taught you last week, or yeah. I taught you last month." And that's what I think newsletters do for people and brands. Nice. So let's get back to uh, to your 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 journey. Um, you you leave journalism, and is it, and then you go to your first startup. So I left journalism. I went to a startup with a friend of mine at the, the height of the dot com boom. Um, I was there for a year and a half. What was the name of that company? It was called Blankaware. We did natural language navigation, which was the ability to find things online other than text. We this whole Web 2.0 thing where you could buy a book, plant a garden, plan a wedding, go to Mexico. Yeah, we were on that way before it became popular. Yeah, the only problem was we didn't have a business model. Okay, there wasn't anything like it was uh, a good idea. AdWords. It was a good idea, but it it was it was before its time. So I was there for a year and a half. I left, went back to journalism. Okay, and then uh, I got poached by a VC, Rick Siegel, to work for a blogging network. Yeah, called B Five Media. B Five Media. B Five Media. I was there for nine months. wasn't the greatest experience, uh, but I learned a lot. Yeah, and got traded to a portfolio company, a travel company called Planet Eye. Did you say you got traded? I got traded, yeah. Essentially, okay. <laughs> essentially, I, I'm being pol- sort of polite. Okay. Uh, they told you to leave and go over there. Yeah, I basically was told to leave and ended up over there. Okay. And was I, Planet I did they were they part of the B5 Media? No, they were they were they were a port, another portfolio company, but they had uh, they had some technology from Microsoft that that put data on maps, and they were trying to build this online okay. travel platform. Wow. It was very ambitious. Yeah. They just didn't get the traction that they wanted, and then the the capital markets um, crumbled, and they couldn't raise any capital, mm-hmm. and they had to lay a bunch of people off, and I was one of them. Yeah, and that led me to start my consulting business in the end of two thousand and eight. That's it. Sounds like very like rocky waters there. Were you were you nervous in terms of jumping in the water, like you said earlier? It was sort of it was shocking at first because yeah. I had never been fired before. Okay. I mean, I, I simply I was fired, but I mean, anyway, you wanted to cut it. And I had a mortgage, and I had three young children. Oh my goodness! And I did what a lot of people do these days: you raise your hand and you say on Facebook and Twitter, "I just lost my job," uh, yeah. and I'm going to be thinking about what I'm going to do next. And what happened is a startup approached me and said, "Hey, we need a marketing plan. Could you help us?" Okay. And I'd never done a marketing plan before. But I figured, okay, I'm going to – I said, yes, I can create a marketing plan. Yeah. So literally I went on Google and I typed in how to create a marketing plan. And I created a marketing plan for this company. I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. And the, if I if I could find it, it would be very interesting because I'm sure it was terrible. 
But they paid for but it. But they paid for it? Okay. They paid for it. And then I got a writing gig for um, a company called Sysimos, which okay. was doing social media marketing. what was this company that you did this marketing plan for? I'm very curious. It was a gaming company. Okay. I can't remember the game. It was so long ago. <laughs> but it was a gaming company, and okay. they were they were just about to launch. And they'd got, they'd got a bunch of government money, so they had some money for marketing. Okay. And then Sysimos came around, and they I basically was on retainer for them for probably six years. Yeah. Writing their blog and helping them with marketing and communications. And for a consultant, that was, like, amazing. Like, the first year of any consulting gig. business is supposed to be – is hard. Yeah. But all of a sudden, I had, I had this paying gig, and I was off to the races. Mm-hmm. And then I started getting more and more and more. And then I entirely give up the whole concept of ever going back to working for somebody. Yeah. Sitting in a cubicle working 9 to 5. I mean, there's nothing working wrong with working 9 to 5 and getting a regular paycheck. I think it's great for lots and lots of people. But I just – I just sort of caught the caught the bug, and I decided that this is what I wanted to do. During this whole process, you and a bunch of friends started one of the more popular uh, tech events, if I can call it that, um, Mesh, Mesh Marketing. Um, how did that begin? Why did that start? And, and you know, why isn't it there anymore? <laughs> Good question. So the roots of Mesh um, started. There was a there was a downturn in the tech market in two thousand and three, two thousand and four. A lot of dot coms disappeared. A lot of spending on advertising disappeared. A lot of conferences disappeared. And there was still a lot of chatter about technology. And so I started talking with people like Matthew Ingram and Rob Hyman and Stuart McDonald and and Mike McDermott of FreshBooks. Yeah. Just about new and exciting things in technology. And then we decided to get together for a beer. And after a couple more beers, we said, you know what we should do? We should start a conference. That's what we're going to do. That would be really exciting. We had no experience with conferences. And somehow we pulled it off. And it was one of these things that was the right thing at the right time. Okay. Mesh was all about what was going – how the, the web was changing politics and culture and business and journalism. And it – was an amazing time. There was an amazing amount of curiosity, and people were willing to pay um, good money for tickets yeah. to come to Mesh. And we brought in like lots and lots of great speakers uh, over the years. And it was an expensive proposition, but it really was a labor of love. And we we had a really good time and spent a lot of time together. And I think the mistake we made was that we either had to sort of go go high or go home. Right? We either uh. had to become a conference. Um, body with a full-time employees like driving sponsorships and yeah. running running spin-off events or we or or not yeah and we decided to be halfway through we decided to uh-huh. keep our 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 day jobs and try to run a conference and then we got a little too ambitious we ran some conferences in western canada and it was such a struggle to sell tickets and to sell sponsorships because we didn't have the infrastructure yeah that i think people got exhausted and eventually Mesh sort of lost its way. Um, there was lots and lots of other conferences yeah. um, emerged on the scene. A lot of conferences that were a lot cheaper. Yeah, and people wanted to go to conferences that were more specialized, as opposed to a conference that was about everything and anything mm. about the web. They wanted to go like a content marketing conference, or an email conference, or sure. a social media conference, because you could justify sending your employees away for a day because they were going to come back with with more with some insight and expertise about something that was specific to their job. Interesting. So Mesh, I think it lost its just lost its place in the marketplace. And yeah. I mean, we did. I think in total, if you count Mesh marketing, we did ten years, which was a good run. Wow. 
And it gave, I mean, again, it was a learning experience. Yeah. Um, met a lot of people, opened up a lot of doors. Yeah. But like business is, that's what business is. Bus- nothing lasts forever. Yeah. And, and when, when you have a great idea and unless you can keep it, you know, vital and, and energized and, and viable, mm-hmm. then it, it has to go away. And that's what, that's happened to Mesh. Yeah, it was it's it was interesting. It was, you know, that time you know in Toronto, uh, there was a there was a bubbling up of of meetups, conferences. Twitter was like the most popular um, social networking app tool company you could use. Um, there was a lot of things going on in Toronto. You could go to a meetup every single day of the week if you wanted to. Um, and for me, Mesh was one of those, I think I came to maybe two or three, uh, but Mesh was one of those places that if you were fortunate to, to attend, that you were in for a good conference. I mean, you were in for some, some speakers that you couldn't, like, you couldn't get anywhere else. Um, yeah, it it was one of the best. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we had product market fit because it was, people were totally into it. They just loved the idea of talking about the web and how it was changing things it was very tedx in that sense Mm, but i think the market shifted on us and people really wanted to sort of do stuff they didn't they were they had sort of got the concepts and they understood the the ramifications of the internet but they had jobs to do and they really wanted to go to events where that was going to help them do their jobs better Hmm. um but i think it's context is everything 10 years ago in toronto the tech scene in toronto was very different than what it is like today demo camp for example was a meetup a monthly meetup that had 300 people come yeah, I remember and that. people were super excited and demo yeah. camp was really amazingly successful because there was nothing else going on i and, remember that and yeah. today for example you have tech to yeah. which is among many 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 events and they get 600 people to show up yeah for their events and it it symbolizes the vitality and the growth of the local technology scene. It's yeah. completely different. Like, I used to know pretty much everybody in the tech community. Yes. And everybody knew me. Yeah. And now when I go to events, I know nobody. <laughs> so, like... Who's this smart guy? Uh, who's this smart guy? Like, and 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 I might find one person. I, and that's been a real, a real eye-opener for me because I thought that I had brand presence. Like, I had a profile. And I've discovered that I don't have... People don't know me. They don't know what I do. And so, um, what has changed? What was it like, you know, in, in 2010? And what is it like only seven years later? Fewer companies, fewer events, less enthusiasm, people wanting to go to work for IBM and Deloitte and, and research in motion, people that didn't have the risk profile. It, there just wasn't that entrepreneurship excitement. Back then. Back then, even back then. I mean, it was there was some, but now, I mean, it's startups are everything. I mean, it's startup, startup, mm. startup. I think it's a little frothy right now. Yeah. I think that there are lots of startups that probably shouldn't exist because they don't have a business model and there's no need for what they're, what they're building. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a sign of a fairly healthy ecosystem because okay. it means that people are learning. They're doing, they're learning, they're failing, and then they're going to hopefully come back and do a better job next time because they've got some experience. But today, the the community is so is so big. And what what I've discovered in terms of my own activity is I need to get out more. Is that 
you know, having a newsletter and writing a blog and, you know, doing good work for clients isn't enough anymore because only a small segment of the population actually sort of hears my message, reads my newsletter. Mm -hmm. And so I really need to sort of pick my spots and start going to events and, you know, meeting people and, and, uh, and spreading the word about what I do and learning at the same time. Yeah. What, um, what are some of these events that, um, like some of the more popular events that are going on these days. You talk about TechTO. TechTO is an amazing uh, creature. I mean, it started off probably with 100 people, then it was 200, then it was 500, then it's 600. Um, there's Startup Grind is very popular. I've heard of that. They probably yeah. get you know, 75 to 100 people, 125 yeah. people out on a monthly basis. Um, I'm going to one tomorrow called uh, Entrepreneurship. A mm-hmm. uh, guy named Jeff Gold. Uh, Berg is speaking tomorrow. Um, he's a Facebook um, advertising uh, guy. And there's just tons and tons of really interesting events out there. And, I mean, just like like it hasn't really changed. There's lots going on. You just yeah. have to pick your spots. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of smart people that are speaking out there. And if you want to learn and you want to keep your skills up to date, then it's really easy to find something to go to. And I think the key is just find the good stuff that's relevant to you. Yes. Um, as opposed to simply going out for the sake of going out. But I, I think we're, I think there's a lot of free stuff out there that you could, that you could yeah. or, or inexpensive events that you could get a lot of value from and, as important, meet a lot of really interesting people. Hmm. So let's talk about uh, me consulting. That's your, your business. Um, you, you started off helping businesses tell stories. Was that correct? That was, or that was sort of your branding. That was kind of the shtick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And has it changed now, or have you just positioned it differently now? It's being positioned differently. Okay. So I was focused. I, I ran with uh, last two or three years. I ran with two major themes. One was one was startups, and the other was storytelling. Okay. The the problem, at least the problem that I sense, mm-hmm. uh, is that uh, startups have no money for marketing or uh, there was a recent report out of U of T, the Impact Center, that startups don't want to don't spend enough money on marketing and sales, even though they should. So that's the first problem, the first challenge uh, running a consulting business is yeah. that you need customers who want to pay who you. Want to pay. Yeah. Uh, and the second thing is that uh, storytelling has really evolved in the last two years. So think about it two years ago when storytelling came out. It was red hot, and it was all about creating narratives Mm -hmm. and connecting with audiences. And brands, big and small, really understand the the, the impact of storytelling Mm -hmm. because it was new. And they all were totally into it because it was – you had to, right? It was shiny and sexy. But I think it's lost its veneer. I think storytelling is still important, but I I just don't think it has the impact that it had before. So if I told people I – I do storytelling, and my sense is that well, that's that's nice that you're a storyteller, and stories are really important. But what do you like? What's in it for me? What are you going to do for me? Because yeah. we're very much, I believe, in a I need to get stuff done. Mm-hmm. You, I need people to help me. How can you help me? Kind of world. How can you help me sell more widgets or whatever? That... Yeah, make my website better, or create more content, or get me media. A coverage and so what I've had to do is really sort of become more overt in the services that I offer. So I can't mm-hmm. say I'm a storyteller and I'll help you tell better stories. Yeah, I basically have to say mm. I help fast-growing companies grow faster by creating marketing that really works. Okay, how do you do that? Yeah, well I can do tactical execution. I do content strategy. I can do marketing strategies. 
I can do optimization of your marketing. I can be your part-time CMO. So I've created like a menu so that potential clients can yeah. look at the menu and go, well, I'll have some of that and I'll have some of that. And I'm hoping that that's a more effective uh, brand positioning mm-hmm. because not that I was struggling, but I just was, as an entrepreneur, a lot of what you, there's for, for all the talk about data, as an entrepreneur, sometimes it comes down to gut. Yeah. Like you really got a sense that the things have shifted on you and and that you better change before it's too late. And I, I've done this two or three times before. Like originally I started doing social media consulting. And then I realized that anybody who was going to pay a social media consultant was probably going to have somebody in-house or they were going to hire an agency. Yes, yes. So I moved away from that and yeah. I got into startups. And I was doing that for a while, and then I realized that just being a startup consultant wasn't good enough because it wasn't it wasn't an effective way to sort of communicate what I did. So I moved to storytelling, wrote mm-hmm. a book about storytelling, and now yeah. I'm shifting again. But that mm-hmm. is business. It, like people talk about big pivots, but yeah. business is a series of small pivots, small ones. Um, micro pivots all the time. You're 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 fiddling with the dials because you're just trying to. If you stay the same, then you're probably uh, dead in the water. So it's not that storytelling isn't important anymore. It's it's what you're doing with with clients and what you're offering clients has is, is changing a lot. You know, with the times and a little bit. I would yeah, say. I mean, yeah. I think the the underpinning of what I do is storytelling. Okay. So if I'm creating collateral or videos or okay. websites, I'm you're trying to tell a story, mm. but I think that it's probably the supporting actor as opposed to the the lead actor okay. whereas before it was the other way around um, it's just it's it, maybe it's it's a it's an experiment right now mm-hmm. I, I could be wrong because I still get people um, asking about help for with storytelling yeah and so I don't want to completely run away from it sure. but I think I do need to be a little more pragmatic in terms of this is the market this is what it what it wants to pay for and so I'll offer services that they want to pay for what clients sorry we'll get to clients in a bit but what brands would you say are really good at at this whole idea of telling stories? So I mentioned a company called Intercom, which is out of Dublin. Okay. And they do basically customer service software. You can tell what your customers are doing. Okay. And they're headed up by a guy named John Collins, who's an ex-journalist, Irish journalist. And he's brought a real um, journalism approach to to what uh, Intercom does. So, for example, they'll do a podcast, they'll turn it into an ebook, uh, they'll turn it into a big book, yeah. they'll turn it into a video, and it's all about storytelling. What's interesting about what Intercom is doing is recently they decided to stop using content marketing as a phrase. They backed off content marketing. Mm-hmm. And their, their approach was that by calling it content marketing, you're basically saying it's content for marketing purposes to get people into the funnel. Ah. And it devalues the value of content. Okay. So it's an interesting uh, position because most companies create content to get leads and sure. demo requests and sales. And what Intercom says is that if you create really good content, um, that that the, the, the dividend will be all that thing. Mm-hmm. That's not why you create content. Yeah. Uh, so I think they do a really good job um, – I think HubSpot obviously is the yeah. rainmaker yeah. when it comes to 
content. I think there's a there's a company called Wistia, which has a video platform that makes I've heard of them. videos about how to make videos. Yeah. And their content's really good. Yeah. WestJet, I think, is really good at content, um, experiential content in yeah. terms of some of the some of the things that they do, you know, free gifts that comes out of vending machines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean there's lots of really um Great players. I mean, Buffer, for example, and, and Groove mm-hmm. are two companies that have really they're awesome blogs. Yeah, and so and their their approach is very customer centric. Very here's the insight that we're going to offer you. Yeah, and if you happen to like it, maybe you will check us out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they have a real commitment to creating content, really high quality content on a regular basis. Yeah, and I think that's one of the interesting things about content these days is that content is easy. Quality content is hard, especially if you want to if you want to create it on a consistent basis. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of brands get bogged down and eventually uh, completely stop is because they they run out of ideas, they run out of talent, they run out of the kind of content that actually is effective. Mm-hmm. And in today's landscape, if you don't have good content or you're not creating on a, on a regular basis, then your content doesn't get noticed. Mm-hmm. In this, you know, you you gave um, an analogy of of uh, the Santa Claus parade, where it's going by and you look down to do whatever, and you look back up, and you may have missed a couple of floats, but you really haven't missed anything. Uh, but those couple of floats might have been your business, your company, or or the company that you wish you had known about that could help you solve a problem that you missed, even though there's tons of more floats, aka content coming by. So in this age where there is, I don't know, how many blogs being produced, written, how many tweets, how many Facebook updates, how many YouTube videos, and so on and so forth, how does um, how does a company or a brand, big or small, um, rise above all the noise? It's a really great question because I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, and I've yeah. noticed some really interesting content recently about different things that brands are doing. And I'm, I have a blog post actually coming out tomorrow um, that talks about the rise of of um, the comeback of old school marketing. Okay. And by that I mean that, for example, uh, cold calling is hot right now. You tweeted or something about that. I, I saw something yeah. about that already. I, uh, I, I had a client that was using cold calling and cold emailing as their two main marketing techniques yeah so where you're you've got lists and of people to call or you you pull them off linkedin or you buy lists and you basically go out and cold email cold call people yeah um i read a blog post um on marketing profs that direct mail is hot right now is that Mm -hmm. a company like neiman marcus says that for every one dollar they spend on direct mail in terms of a catalog they make four dollars in revenue wow um uh People are starting to see value in going to conferences and events these days, like TechTO. Yeah, uh, just talking to people on the phone is is effective. And I think I think what's happening is that we li- we're living in a very automated digital marketing world where drip campaigns, you know, come at you like a tsunami as yeah. soon as you sign up for a service or even check out a service. And you go to a conference and you leave your card, and all of a sudden you get an email the first day, and the third day, and the fifth day, and the seventh day. And I think that kind of thing is losing its effectiveness. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of brands are scrambling to figure out, oh, how do we, how do we get people's attention in a world dominated by social media, and email marketing, and content marketing? And they're turning to um, 
different tools and techniques to do that. I, mean, I should add to the list that podcasts are another great example like of, of, yeah. of, of uh, old school marketing. Now, remember, podcasting is not new. It no. was you know, 10 years ago, it was hot and everyone had a podcast and then podcasts disappeared. Yeah. Why are podcasts back now in the last two or three years? Like, why do you do, why do, you do a podcast? For me, it's my hockey. It's my okay. hockey night. <laughs> right. So I think that one of the reasons is that it's a, it's one of these against the grain activities. It was one of these grain, against yes. the grain activities that no one else is doing podcasts. So let's do something different. Mm. And so because everybody else is doing the digital you know, content, social thing, and we'll do something different because that will pique cu- people's curiosity. And I think that that's why direct mail and conferences – and cold calling are back again because it's different. Like it's hmm. it's you're going against literally literally going against the grain. Yeah. To get people to pay attention to you. Yeah. So then, how is, is it just by doing something different that that brands can grab attention or get attention? Because there's a lot of a lot of brands doing different things. Well, I think you've got to be really really good at what you do. If whether it's social media or content, or yeah. you have to be different. Yeah. Or you have to be creative in terms of maybe doing stunts or creating reports or doing things that are that are sort of unique to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you have to be consistent. I, I think it's. I think marketing is probably turning into it's a game of inches as a sort of game of miles. Like it's really you have to. It's in day in day out, mm-hmm. and and I think you really have to be looking f- um, for ways to uh, outmaneuver the competition like when everyone's doing the same thing when yeah. your message fails to resonate so at all times you need to be figuring out so how can we do what we need to do that maybe isn't what other people are doing yeah and so i think for marketers it's an extremely challenging landscape because it gets tougher and tougher and tougher to do the things that work hmm. you've written a book you're writing another one i was going to refresh my book, story, refresh book? Storytelling okay. for Startups, okay. and I ended up rewriting it. Yeah. The thing about writing, I think for writers in general, is that when you write something, at the time it seems really good, and then you read it again, you go, oh, my God, that's crap. I, I could have <laughs> done so much better. You know, I just failed to write about all these things. And so I'm going to I'm, I'm in the midst of a rewrite. I'm hoping to get it done by the end of June. Okay. Uh, the working title is um, is more pictures, fewer spelling mistakes. That's my that's more my okay. fewer spelling. Because I because you can't catch everything, and sure. I wish I'd added more pictures because people love to read pictures these days. Yeah. But it's going to be it's along the lines of sort of around storytelling, but more around strategy, mm. really around messaging, around um, how do you create kind of a whole storytelling uh, culture where everybody in your organization is a storyteller in one way, shape, or form. Yeah. And so that's – it's a labor of love. It's great. It's a, books are a great branding opportunity. Yeah. Uh, there's probably not a lot of money in books unless you're, you know, one of those romance novels, you yeah. know. But um, but I, it's it's a great opportunity to get your get out there and differentiate yourself, which is, again, back to marketing, right? You do things that, that you think are going to make you rise above the crowd. That's so true. Um you're a resident of Toronto, and uh, every now and again I'll see, whether it's a tweet or a Facebook post about stuff that's going on, um, you know, there's conversations. Uh, I, I think this is a never-ending conversation in Toronto about transit, um, and, and really what's hot these days is conversations um, around the housing market. Um, let's, let's, let's tackle... 
You cool talking about this stuff? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. If I wasn't if I wasn't doing what I'm doing right now, I think my third career yeah. would be as an urban planner. Really? Okay. Yeah, I'm fascinated with with the way that the city is planned and how we're accommodating growth and how we're going to handle 100,000 more people coming into the city every year and I'm and the Tory administration is is frustrating and I think the city is is changing so fast, and I think we just we're not keeping up. And I'm I'm I don't know what Toronto's going to look like in ten years. I'm, I'm in some ways I'm excited, in some ways I'm concerned. What have we? So so when I take a look at Toronto, and you know it's hard to compare it with with other cities, um, but you know I've been to um, I've been to a, a bunch of cities, and I'll, I'll you know I like comparing it to uh, Bogota, Colombia. Um, uh, Taipei, Taiwan, um, and, and and New York City, and New York City is like ten times the size, if not, if not even larger. Uh, but these cities are, are doing some really interesting things. You know, whether it is Bogota um, and them closing the streets uh, to cars. I don't know if it's once a week or once a month. Um, whether it is. Um, Taipei and their subway system. They're the same size as Toronto, essentially, but their subway system is so extensive. Um, or, or whether it's New York, where you think there's nowhere to move, and they still, they're, they've got bike lanes coming out of the wazoo in New York City. I was shocked the last time I went there, how many bike lanes, there's bike lanes all over the place there. And in Toronto, it's like, we're afraid to put bike lanes. We're afraid uh, to develop comprehensive transit i don't care if it's above ground below ground if it's in the air we're afraid to invest in making the city um in my opinion like world class well we're afraid to do a lot of things except give uh, condo developers the ability to build giant towers all the time seemingly (laughs) seemingly enough you know when it does makes no sense to the community like like i don't know when this podcast is going to be broadcast but today the liberal government said that they're going to abolish the omb yeah, which I think is a super amazing board because you've got this non-elected, uh, untransparent organization that makes planning decisions, um, overrules city uh, policies yeah. to make planning decisions that are really not good for communities, That's and right. so yeah. and it's all based on precedents. And I think the OMB is has been probably. Um, one of the worst things for Toronto in the last 20 years. I mm-hmm. think they have overridden really good planning um, uh, policies and, 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 and aspirations because yeah. they see things in black and white as opposed to seeing the, the city at, in a holistic way and, and how, where are people going to live and how are we going to service these people? How, where are they going to work? How are they going to get around? Even things like how are we going to deliver... Uh, infrastructure such as utilities and sewage to them. I mean, Mm -hmm. you look at King Street, for example, where they're building two 90-story condos, and how how are they going to move these people around? Yeah. And so I think that I really am uh, terribly disappointed in the way that the city's been planned over the last 10 years. I think developers have really um, had their way in terms of making money. Uh, On one hand, you need more housing, but I think it's just happened in a very scattered way a way that just is not very cohesive so mm-hmm. um i'm hoping but on the other hand you know if i'm if you're a half glass uh kind of per, full kind of person then there are more bike lanes than ever before um there's some really interesting things interesting things happening on the waterfront mm-hmm. i think 
that were still managed to protect the you know the green space yeah. around Toronto. Yeah. I mean, there are some things to be excited about, but I still think you know we need things like more public transportation, and we need more public housing. I mean, Toronto, in my mind, cannot be a people for rich people. Yeah. We just can't have rich people living downtown. You need all kinds of people to work and to play and to live. And to live, right? I mean, you know, why we don't have more subsidized housing in all these condo developments is beyond me. I mean, it's so it would have been so forward thinking to to have those kind of policies in place, but instead, where do where do where do people who don't have make as much money live these days? Yeah, I mean, you have to. I, I think it's a healthier place when they live them. Everybody's living together. Yeah, it's it's. It's it's really interesting. In, in in one sense, there's a lot of great things going on, and and the other sense, because the city like. In terms of the space that it occupies, is so large that um, certain places in the city don't, you know, are are, are, are ignored in, to to an extent. And, and 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 what I mean by that is, so I I, I live in Scarborough. Um, I spend a lot of time downtown, midtown, uh, obviously out east in Scarborough, and it's almost like we're being hijacked by we're being played we're being played that's that's the so what do you think of the scarborough subway the one-stop scarborough subway i think that is the most ridiculous decision you can make about transit um one subway stop doesn't serve a a a a borough if we can you know if we call scarborough um of over a half a million people um why we don't go back to transit city um, why there's not multiple stops um, like like they're doing with the Eglinton Crosstown? Um, we need we need more we need more we need bike lanes. It is it, as easy as it as it is to bike uh, near the lake in the core. It is next to impossible to bike on the road in Scarborough. So why do you think the city is spending three and a half billion dollars on a one stop subway? One name, Ford. That is the only reason it is around, is because when Rob Ford was uh, the mayor, he had this power that uh, council didn't want to go against, that uh, the Liberal Provincial Party at the time um, saw as a threat to uh, their viability and said, if we want the votes, we need to side with this dude here. And say, so, okay, we'll, we'll do this. And I think it, it started off as maybe three or four stops. Yeah, it was three remember. stops to start. Three, yeah. three stops and then went back to one. But because there is this huge group of people that, um, that live in Scarborough, that uh, all that they want is this word called subway. That, and, and if they don't get subway, they feel ignored and they feel angry. And people like John Tory, and and his I want to call it cabinet, but really you know his 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 people that that agree with him, um, are not building this because it makes sense for the community. They're building this and moving forward with this because it makes sense for their careers every three years. That's probably true. You know, who you should, if you haven't had her on the show already, it would be Jennifer Keysmat. I have tweeted at her oh, so many times. She would be so super awesome because but she has her own podcast. I don't know. She, I, I, I know she's so. Yeah. I, I, I love her on Twitter because she's so. She yeah. has so many good ideas and she's right out there. My frustration with with her is that 
She talks about awesome stuff about what's happening in other cities, and it just makes it it pains me because I I, I keep thinking, well, why Jennifer, can't we why here? can't we have it here? Well, you know what? I think she has great I, because I I don't know whether she has the the power to execute these things. I I think everything resides with 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 the mayor. Uh, and with what do they call that? Not the cabinet. What do they call that at the city level? Anyways, that, that group of people, right? You know, I think that. I mean, I think she is a great sort of planning evangelist, and I think it's yeah. important to have someone like her. Richard who... Petty can't say enough good things about her. Richard Petty's now the VP or vice chair of the Toronto Foundation, soon to be the chair of the president now, and you know, he, he thinks she's one of the most brilliant people. And if you know you have somebody who has really great ideas and is not afraid to share them, yeah, in a very public way, yeah. And I think discourse uh, is very important, whether you agree with her or whether you don't. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we're having a conversation as she's igniting conversations about planning yeah. is is really important because otherwise, if you had a faceless bureaucrat there who just followed the party line, yeah, that's not good for Toronto. No, and that doesn't get conversations going and it doesn't get us having really really healthy discussions about where we want the city to go yeah but there's things like you know so we've talked transit i think we need better transit more efficient transit i think for me to go from home to work and driving will take me 15 minutes but when i hop on the one bus and it takes me 45 minutes that doesn't make sense to me right right i'd be interested to see what happens when the uh, eglinton crosstown gets completed yeah especially if they if they go all the way out East. They but, should. But the the segment that they're building right now, I don't know when it's opening. Probably where does it stop at Don Mills? I think somewhere somewhere in sort of that vicinity. Yeah. But I think that'll be really interesting to see the impact that has on that part of the city. Yeah. Um, you know, communities like Young and and Eglinton, which are obviously North Toronto, are very wealthy, but parts yeah. to the east and west that aren't as wealthy, but. You're going to be giving people infrastructure, transit infrastructure, they can mm-hmm. get around easier. They can get to work easier. They can their home is probably be worth more money because That's there's transit thing. there, <laughs> you know. And there should be transit on and lots of other places like yeah. that. I mean, you know, whether it's um, dedicated bus lanes or or LRTs on Finch and on Shepherd. Shepherd. Oh yes, yes, yes. And so you know we're way behind. Like I I spent um, we were in Barcelona last summer yep. and Barcelona has an awesome subway system that they have built. Um, since they had the Olympics there, I mean, the Olympics was a was an impetus for them to build mm. public transportation, and yeah. it's it's great. I was in Paris, and Paris has an awesome metro. Yes, that's right. And we're a world class city, or we we aspire to be a world class city, but we have we have a we have a, like a second world transit system. Like we just yeah. we're, we're just so far behind, and I don't know how we catch up. And and you talk about housing. And that's another thing. I mean, there's there's a there's a double-edged sword with housing. One is the cost of housing is like if I had to buy a house, I can't afford to live in the city. Like impossible. Um, and I don't know how. I understand how single people can afford to live here because they'll rent a basement, right? They'll rent they'll they'll rent a small place and they'll do it that way. Um, but I don't know how. How families like your family, my family, could afford to live here? It's 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 you know un- unless we were to inherit a house or whatever, it's next to impossible to afford housing in this city. So that's one edge of the sword. The other edge of the sword is as these housing prices go up, the property taxes, which are uh, tied to the value of a home, 
go up, but they go up, and, and, and it's weird because they go up, and it's, it's, it's quote-unquote a lot because it's tied to the value of the home, but it's also not a lot based upon what we need in terms of funding for the city, whether it is more subways, whether it is bike lanes, whether it is um, other types of infrastructure, uh, such as water and sewage and electricity and all these sorts of things. Like, how are we going to build the city when at the bottom line people complain like heck about having to pay for stuff here yeah the i think the reality is, is that we i mean for for a long time politicians said we we don't have a revenue problem we have a spending problem and it yeah. was all about cutting the gravy and really yeah. sort of finding ways to be super efficient and a lot of that stuff has been done there might be more stuff to do but we have a revenue problem is that Absolutely. we we don't generate enough revenue to pay for the services that we want so next year they're talking about a budget freeze which means basically with inflation it's a it's a services cut like you if you can't yeah. you can't freeze your budget without when costs are going up you've got to cut someplace else and so that's a, it's a real challenge for the city because uh, John Tory doesn't want to raise property taxes above the rate of inflation yeah. but you've got a you know a 2 2 and a half billion dollar public housing uh, backlog yeah. which is a, a an abomination because you have these people living in places that that should that they shouldn't be living in mm-hmm. you've got public transportation that they can't pay for i mean they can't pay for the the Scarborough subway or yeah. or the crosstown train um, you've got infrastructure costs. I mean, you've got it's spe- it's cost, cost, cost. But yeah. we're not we don't have a way. There's no there doesn't seem to be a way to get the money we need. I don't know what the answer is. Well, the, the their answer is those who can't afford end up paying more, and they end up paying more by uh, cutting libraries, right? So you've got now less. You either got less hours at the library, or you start paying for the library. You've got parents who rely, like heavily, heavily rely on city programming, whether it's after school programs or whether it's summer programs, that without those programs that are, quote unquote, they used to be affordable, but year by year, the cost continues to increase and increase that summertime comes and that is a stressful time for parents because not not stressful in terms of I got to drive my kid to a summer program now, but stressful because I can't afford to put my kid in these now city programs, which were supposed to be affordable. Now it's become unaffordable. And now it's like, what do you do? What do these parents do? The city's got to work for everybody. It's got to work in terms of where we live and where we make a living. Yeah. I mean, that's my sort of maybe it's uh, an idyllic view of the world, but I think it's got to work for everybody. And I think, you know, for example, city programs, maybe one of the solutions is city programs should be um, should be geared to people who can't afford other programs. There's lots of people in the city who make a lot of money and can afford, you know, other programs. But for subsidized programs, maybe it's you have to be maybe it's um, it's gauged in terms of how much money you make. Mm. I don't know. But I do know that the growing list of things we need to pay for keeps growing keeps growing and we seemingly have no way of paying for it other than turning to the provincial and federal governments and yeah. saying give us some more money and and they've got their own financial challenges mm-hmm. and they're not gonna turn around and say yeah sure here's money for your subway or your infrastructure because they've got other constituents they have to please as well so i don't know the way out like i i think and that's a and i think the 
the city, the financial sort of head of Toronto is sort of saying to this, says, you've got a problem right now. You better fix it because you can't yeah. pay for things by raiding reserve funds and selling off utilities. At some point in time, you know, uh, rubber's going to hit the road and you're going to make some tough decisions. And yeah. and that that's coming soon. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that you're right. I don't know what the end, like I'm, you and I are probably not smart enough to figure out what the problem is, you know, part time. Uh, but there are smart. I, I I truly believe there are smart people that work at the city or that work with the city that can or maybe they've already figured out what it's going to take to solve the issue long term. The problem in in the one of the major hurdles is every four years these politicians have to apply for the job again. And I think for a lot of these career city politicians, uh, the Mamalides of the world, the Norm Kellys of the world, and there's a lot of other people, um, that they're looking every four years. They're not looking, you know, they don't they don't see the kids and go, okay, how can I make this better for them so that when they grow up, there's parks, there's transit, there's homes, there's programming. There's all of these things in the city rather than when they grew up, yeah, there's going to be this stuff, but it, everyone's going to have to pay like through the nose for all of these things. Well, that thing that's the ugly, the ugly side of politics is that you know, they're always campaigning. They're always sort of looking to please. Yeah. And sometimes the, the best decisions are the hard decisions are the ones that are probably the politically the, um, the hardest for people to swallow. So, for example... Um, the OMB, the, like the demolition of the OMB, is you could argue it's it's a it's a political decision, but it's a much needed decision. Mm-hmm. But I think the liberals are being spurred on by the fact that people everybody hates the OMB, and it's a great way of getting elected. Um, you know, the Scarborough subway. I think you know John Tory supported the Scarborough subway because he wanted to be mayor. Yeah, and it's really hard for him now that he's trying to run for mayor again. I would you would believe to back off the Scarborough subway. So people, I think people make decisions based on political considerations as opposed to what's what's for the, the yeah. bigger but i mean good. he he went he was against road tolls and and then he started stumping for road tolls um now, now eventually he didn't get it at, at the time it might change down the road but um i i, th- I think toronto needs real leadership and i i think it needs it needs someone who is going to make um, the tough short-term decisions um, for a long-term vision. I mean, that's my opinion. Yeah. Well, I think that. Yeah. I mean, if you look at a, a top decision, we we should have pulled down the gardener, but instead yeah. we, we're building this hybrid. You know, spending lots of money to build a hybrid, and but that's not that's not vision. That's politics. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think Toronto has been afflicted by uh, politically impacted decisions. I mean, not to say that we're not like any other place, but it, you know, from the outside looking in, it's really it's a it's a real sad state of affairs because I think that that the city could be could be a really great place if we had if we had more of an appetite for decisions that may not be as palatable as we want them to be. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. That was a good rant on yeah. the city <laughs> and technology. You had fun? It was great. Awesome. Thanks for the opportunity. It's always good to talk about things that you don't get to talk about every day, at least not in a public forum. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me.